Hello and welcome to Malicious Life. My name is Ran Levy. It may be hard to believe, but the concept of antivirus is only just over 30 years old now. The first ever documented case of an antivirus software was created in early 1987 by Bernd Fix, a German hacker, in order to defeat a dot-com infecting virus called Vienna. 1987, you could say, was when antivirus was born, because this new approach to information security would go on to be invented separately multiple times over in different countries around the world that same year. This brings us to the subject of today's episode of our show. Later that same year, a threatening virus was discovered at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The program, it appeared, had the ability to delete the computer's worth of data at a whim. Scholars and researchers in Israel at the time were intrigued and concerned and knew they had to do something. Nowadays, though, the story of this virus has much less to do with the damage it caused than the good it ushered in. This virus was nicknamed the Jerusalem virus, and it happened to trigger a series of events that would culminate in something very rare, the birth of an entire national industry. Okay, my name is Yuval Rokavi, and I'm uh, playing with computers since I was probably 11 years old. Today, playing with, with computers is uh, quite common, also not common enough, uh, but is quite common. When I was 11 years old, it was very uncommon because it was predate the era of PCs, and I was extremely lucky that my father was a physics professor, and he was using computers since the 50s, actually. He actually used the first computer in Israel. Uh, so I was exposed to computers since a very young age. When Yuval reached adulthood, he enrolled in the computer science program at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. While a student, he also ran a tiny software company with his friend and fellow student, Omri Mann. While at the university, Yuval reconnected with two old friends of his, Eli and Nir Barkat. During this time, I was already uh, had a, a, a company that I was a founder of, which wrote software for uh, cable televisions. What happens then is that uh, Nir Barkat, who was later the CEO of uh, BRM and the, now just finished his role as the mayor of Jerusalem, uh, came to, to, to me and Eli. Eli was his brother who was studying with me at the university, and he... Anir studied the business administration, and he said, look, you don't know how to run a company. You know, uh, if you do this and this and this, you can be a big company. Yuval and Omri took the advice, hiring Eli and Anir to the team. They would name their company BRM, after the initials of each of their names. B. Barkat, R. Rakavi, M. Man. Which was not really the name we preferred. We preferred much nicer names, but uh, that was... That, 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 that was the, na- the last name on the list, and uh, we, we didn't know that you have to reverse the list before submitting it if you really want the name that you want. Hmm. Uh, so so we, we got the last in the list, but uh, so we're, st- we're stuck with this name until today. Still, all BRM had at its onset were a few technically gifted engineers and a business leader. They didn't even really know what to make. That was until one fateful day in November of 1987 when the phone rang in Yuval's room. 
then you know luck strike luck or unluck actually it, it depends how you look at it because one day Omri calls me and he says look come to my home uh, there is something wrong with the computer and I ask him what uh, what should I bring should I bring a screwdriver a soldering machine whatever you know that's kind of uh, things that you bring when the computer doesn't work right he says no 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 just come Yuval got up and nearly ran all the way to Omri to witness something they couldn't quite understand but understood the gravity of. And uh, I came to him and he shows me a very interesting phenomenon. You run a program, it has a certain size, you run it again, it gets a little bit bigger, you run it again, it gets bigger, then you run another program, it also gets bigger. Every time Omri ran a file on his computer, this odd program he didn't recognize got larger and larger in size. It was as if, just by using his computer, Omri was feeding this strange beast. What could it possibly be? It was while they sat together and looked over the program's code that the two computer science students recalled an article they'd seen not so long before, sent to them by a member of the department's faculty. It was a groundbreaking article from Dr. Fred Cohen. pioneer in information security who was the first to analyze computer viruses from a mathematical point of view. It was then that the two students realized what they had on their hands, a real-life computer virus in action. Lucky for us, uh, uh, I got, I was, uh, as part of my studies, I had uh, uh, an exercise to write of a, of a program that goes over a file system and uh, prints The name of each file in each directory so we took this program and uh, we did some disassembly for the uh, for the programs that got bigger and we found how out uh, what how the virus works and we, we uh, wrote some code to remove this virus and was another thing that we did uh, the virus had a bug and it reinfected this the same file again and again but the way the virus works the first time you ran an infected program it installed itself in memory and And every program that you ran it's, it, it, it was uh, got infected now before installing itself in memory it, it checked if it's already installed in memory and if it was already installed in memory it did not install it itself again so we made use of this fact and uh, we wrote a small very tiny program that actually told the virus yes you are installed so if you ran this program beforehand you are immune to that to the virus so uh, be Because the virus said, "Oh, I'm installed, no need to reinstall myself." So that was the first step in, 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 in uh, finding the virus, first of all, to, to, to disable it, and then you could actually remove it. And uh, we gave away this uh, software, and I remember that uh, I was uh, very hesitant whether actually to talk about it or not, because I was afraid that the idea of writing a computer virus, if it will go over the media, it would become very popular because, It is actually very, very interesting. If you think for, a young, for a, an amateur programmer or for a programmer, it's the closest you can become to play God. You're actually kind of creating a life. And I was sure that if it would be uh, the idea will get uh, publicity, many more people will start playing and writing viruses that will become a, a huge problem. As Yuval, Omri, Eli and Nir were just getting the company moving, Ofer Achituf, only a few tens of miles away, was on the verge of losing his.
Ofer founded his software company, Iris, all on his own a decade prior. At its peak, Iris was a thriving organization employing dozens of workers. In more recent years, though, major debt and insufficient sales threatened the company with bankruptcy and forced Ofer to lay off his employees en masse. By November of 1987, Iris was down to just three employees total, including Ofer himself. Ofer became so desperate that he contemplated taking out a second mortgage on his house before friends and family stepped in to convince him how foolish a move that would have been. Ofer wasn't as natural a technology enthusiast as Yuval and Omri. Growing up in the 70s, he'd studied violin and continued that track through college. Knowing the financial pitfalls of a music career, he decided he'd dual major in math. As all Israelis of a given age are, Ofer went to the Israeli Defense Forces after school and while there was tasked with the production of statistical reports for military use. The creation of these reports was done, at the time, with the help of mainframe computers common to the times. Leveraging the technical acumen he'd built up while enlisted and abandoning a career as a professional violinist, at age 28, Ofer founded Iris. Iris's primary product, fittingly enough, was a software designed for producing statistical reports. Ofer had written the program himself, which worked on the smaller personal computers that began to be sold in Israel around this time. Iris's flagship product was a market success, selling to large and small corporations and even the IDF, where Ofer first learned the skills to build such a program. The company hired more employees and developed their product line to incorporate encryption and InfoSec-related products. Then things started to take a turn for the worse. Ofer filed suit against a former colleague of his whom he claimed had copied the code from his flagship statistical reports software to create a competing product. That lawsuit would last nearly an entire decade, reaching all the way to Israel's Supreme Court. Ofer did end up winning the case, but between attorney's fees and emotional stress, the victory didn't hold so much weight. Not only that, the time and energy wasted had seemingly taken a huge toll on his business. Iris's products began to fall off in quality over time, and customers gradually began moving elsewhere. At the end of it all, all offer had was one sales manager, one software engineer, and tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. Bankruptcy loomed. Let me pause for a moment to provide some context here. Have you ever encountered a computer virus, maybe on your own machine? Everybody hates a virus, besides, of course, the hackers themselves. It's just so annoying to deal with, and at worst, hugely harmful to your personal data, even your finances. There's probably never been one person who's been happy about a computer virus. That would make no sense, right? But wait, what about a man who has nothing to lose? whose company is going bankrupt, life torn apart by a bitter legal battle with a former friend, and no prospects or hopes to hold on to. In November of 1987, Carmel, a distributor of Irish software in northern Israel, began receiving reports from confused customers about a strange file growing on all of their computers. 
Carmel, not knowing what to do themselves, passed the news on to Ofer Achitu. Ofer gave a copy of an infected disk to the one remaining programmer of his company. The programmer went off on his way and then came back a few hours later in total astonishment. This, he said, was the very first instance he'd ever seen, he, a professional computer programmer, of a software which replicated itself. Offer and his colleagues sat at the computer, carefully reviewing the strange code, trying to understand its mechanisms. Offer may not have known it that day, but he was about to become the happiest man to ever have contracted a computer virus. Malicious Life is brought to you in collaboration with Cyberism. Cyberism allows you to gain the upper hand by taking an entirely new approach to cybersecurity, stopping fireless malware, lateral movement, and even zero days. Connect the dots and gain unmatched visibility with Cyberism. Learn more at cyberism.com. At this point in our story, Offer and his programmer were two of the handful of people, including the guys at BRM and a select few other computer professionals, aware that there was now a very real virus spreading all over the country. Offer took this dire situation as an opportunity, realizing there was now a market for an entirely new software product, something that could get rid of this self-replicating program. Knowing that the window of opportunity to be the first to market would close soon, Offer and his programmer got down and dirty, conceiving and building software to counter the virus. But it got more complicated. They'd have to come up with a program that could beat not just this program, but any future variants and iterations of this software. So the two men designed a software that would scan a computer to locate fires infected by the virus they'd seen, as well as any similar enough virus that may come in the future. With the code ready, all they had to do was give their new product a name. Because the word virus wasn't widely used to describe computer programs in 1987, they couldn't just call their program, you know, antivirus. Offer figured, however, that people did know about the biological AIDS virus. Clearly, Offer wasn't as talented a marketer as he was a programmer when he released his brand new product to the market called Anti-AIDS. Similar programs to Anti-AIDS were released around the same time in the US and UK, but Offer has claimed that his was the first commercial antivirus in world history. I can't confirm whether that's true or not, but what we can assume is that those American and British products probably had much better names. Offer and his two remaining employees couldn't have been more timely when, just as they finished designing the logo for anti-AIDS, the story about a new virus threatening Israel's computer systems broke in the press. It was then that the phenomena got its name, the Jerusalem virus. So, here we are. At Hebrew University, Yuval and his three friends at BRM are trying to beat the Jerusalem virus. A short drive away, Ofer and his two colleagues are trying to do the same. Citizens around the country are starting to get word of what's going on. 
It wouldn't be long before more copies of the virus would make their way out of the country and around the globe. But what was this so-called Jerusalem virus? What caused it to capture the minds of a nation? Jerusalem wasn't the first virus of its kind. Computer scientists had already seen instances of self-replicating programs years earlier. It also wasn't the very first virus that was designed with the intention of causing damage to host computers. In 1986, Lehigh University personnel encountered a virus that would erase all information on their host disks. That virus caused a commotion at the Pennsylvania-based school that ultimately was stopped before it could escape the confines of the campus. Jerusalem was different primarily for one key trait. It was what we'd call a logic bomb, activated only if a certain condition is realized. Jerusalem, when activated, would delete all information on its host computer, and its condition that the date would be Friday the 13th. That just seems cheeky now, doesn't it? Clearly, Jerusalem's writer was having a little bit of fun by giving the malicious program a malicious activation date. Researchers took the date seriously, looking back to see if any significant Israeli historical events had fallen on a Friday the 13th of past years. Conspiracies were floated, but none given any credence. More evidence started to float in that Jerusalem wasn't as scary as everybody had previously thought when researchers discovered it was simply a reworked version of a previously known virus, Suriv 3. Suriv being virus spelled backwards, as if it couldn't get any worse. Suriv 3 was itself a mashup of two earlier viruses, Suriv 1 and Suriv 2. Those viruses were not designed to destroy any information like Jerusalem was. Instead, there were simple logic bombs which, if it were April 1st of the year, would produce the message, quote, April 1st, haha, you have a virus. Discovering its connection with the Suriv viruses only opened the field wider for who Jerusalem's writer could have been. Really, any amateur could have done the work. Even calling this person a virus writer might be a misnomer here. It doesn't take a genius to change a date and a function in a simple program. Still, the media hype around Jerusalem caused it to spawn a horde of other equally uncreative spawn, often containing blatant errors. One version of Jerusalem, for instance, changed the activation date of the original program from Friday the 13th to simply the seventh day of the week. That is, the first Saturday after infecting a new machine. What the novice writer of this virus failed to realize is that in the computer world, counting generally begins not with one, but zero. So a computer program might consider Sunday not day one of the week, but day zero, and Monday day one. Because of this, Saturday would be day six, and the seventh day of the week, as understood in computer code, simply does not exist. Needless to say, this version of the virus was completely harmless, a bomb that could never go off. The market for a program to combat the Jerusalem virus burst wide open. The rumor that two students at the Hebrew University found a cure spread quickly, and Omri and Yuval distributed copies of their program free of charge to anyone who wanted it. I was interviewed on CNN, on, uh, on all kinds of, on, uh, on many... On many medias and uh, the story got out 
and a few, of course, a few weeks later, there was another virus, and uh, days later, another virus, and we actually found ourselves updating our program uh, to, to, to be able to, look, to identify and remove uh, more and more viruses. And then, actually, we understood that, first of all, as long as we are virus-specific, that means that our software is actually working against a specific viruses, we will, are not in the position ethically for asking money for the software because then people will say, oh, those clouds, they, they uh, write the virus and then they sell you the antivirus. So uh, there is a saying in Hebrew, a uh, good name is more important than uh, good, uh, good money. And we actually acted uh, according to this uh, rule and we, we, we gave away the software. So there will be no reason to say that we are writing the virus. Seeing the hole in the market, other software companies stepped in and created their own antivirus programs. Carmel, the northern-based distributor of Ofer Achituv's iris products, released their own Turbo antivirus. And a firm called El Yashim, whose two founders were mentors to Yuval Rakavi back in their days at the Israeli Air Force Technical School, devised their own program called VirusSafe. These antivirus solutions made use of the same technique, scanning computers to identify the unique signatures of known viruses. In this case, primarily the Jerusalem virus. Scanning for signatures like this does work for relatively simple viruses, but there are obvious longer-term problems with the method. Think about it. Every time a new virus shows up in the world, an update to the program has to be written and installed to account for that new signature. Of course, in November 1987, new kinds of viruses weren't cropping up all that often. It allowed El Yashim, for example, to distribute new versions of their software by using a messenger on a scooter who went around to customers hand-delivering new disks every few months. These listeners were the good old days of cyber security. but time would go on and newer, more complex viruses hit the scene. As new viruses continued to get better too, the old means of antivirus would become obsolete. Think about how much time and resources it takes to review the data on each and every file on a computer. Theoretically, you could speed up the process by localizing the scan to certain files and not others, but doing so risks the possibility that an unsuspected, sophisticated virus could slip past. But before all that, even with new products entering the market, the Jerusalem virus was spreading faster than it could be put out. Luckily, there was a man who stood to benefit from the chaos. In our next episode, we'll pick up the story where we've just left off. As Ofer Achituv's fortunes change forever, Yuval Rakavi receives an incredible surprise in front of thousands of people, and the Israeli antivirus industry blows up. Perhaps a bit too big. All that to come next time on Malicious Life. That's it. Thank you for listening. As always, visit malicious.life to subscribe to our podcast, read full transcripts, and download other episodes. You can find us on Twitter at, at MaliciousLife and at Rand Levy. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. 
Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.